Well, a number of years ago, our family went on a vacation uh, down to Gatlinburg, Tennessee, which is an experience in and of itself if you've never been there. But it's basically hillbilly heaven, and we fit right in. But anyway, while we were down there, we were going through some of the different shops and whatnot, and we found a house of mirrors. I'm not sure if you've ever been in a house of mirrors before, but it is a it's basically a little maze in a, a dark, well, barely lit place where mirrors are on every wall the, the whole way through, and they are designed to twist the reflection and to present a distorted image of reality, of you. And it's kind of a fun thing that as you walk through and you, you look at yourself in, in one mirror, you look tall and thin. And then you go to the next mirror and you're short and tubby. And from mirror to mirror, it stretches you out in different ways. And it's, it's kind, of a, kind of a fun thing. And then when you get out, you're like, okay, wow, I'm glad that's over in one sense. When you read through the Bible, one of the things you realize is that actually when you step out of the house of mirrors, that game of imagery and twisting of reality doesn't actually stop. You see, we live in a world where sin twists everything, and it takes good things that God has created and distorts them and gives us an, oftentimes a very difficult challenge of being able to see what, what is real and what is not real. And this is, this is all around us, and it's within us, even in our deceitful heart, that twists everything that God has made for good and sin wants to use it for evil, to turn what ought be glorifying and honoring to God and enjoyable for us into a, a, a self-centered, self-serving sort of sinful perspective. The house of mirrors of the world distorts everything, including, and in some ways it feels like especially, sexuality. We're confused about, about who we are and how our bodies are to be used and what relationships are supposed to look like and what we do with desires that we have that God says are actually good desires, but that sin wants to twist and distort to be used for sinful, selfish purposes. And what we need is we need instruction from God's Word to hold up the true mirror to show us what reality actually is so that we know who we are and how we ought relate to one another and to all of the messages that we hear. That is true for us, and it was true for this young Thessalonian church. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul uh, meets these, these new believers now in a new section of the book. The first three chapters have been about encouragement of God's work in them. He's celebrating how the gospel came to them and what God has done in them. It's been, it's been good and encouraging. And now what he does in chapter 4 and 5 is he's going to move now to exhortations. Move from encouragement now to exhortations about God's will for them. So encouragement about God's work in them, chapters 1 through 3, and now exhortations about God's will for them. Because God has done and is doing so much in them, now they are going to be told how they are to respond to Him. 
We saw last week that he concluded this, this section in verse 13, chapter 313. Uh, well, verse 12, that you should have love for one another and for all as we do. Verse 13 of chapter 3, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of the Lord Jesus with all his saints. Last week we left with our eyes up on the reality that Jesus is coming soon and that we should be growing in holiness and in our love for one another. And now he's going to move into this section and tell us what that looks like. And he's going to begin in the most intimate of areas with talking about sexuality and sexual sin. Follow along here, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his body in holiness and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress or wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called you for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God who gives His Holy Spirit to you. If we're going to summarize in maybe one sentence what this section is about, we might do it like this, that we are to grow in holiness by abstaining from immorality and pursuing purity. We are to grow in holiness by abstaining from immorality and pursuing purity. We're going to uh, arrange this section of, of Scripture in, in three three parts. The first are verses 1 and 2, that we are to please God by progressing in purity. We're to please God by progressing in purity. Then number 2, verses 3 through 7, we are to fear God and abstain from immorality. We are to fear God and abstain from immorality. And then finally, number 3, we are to obey God who gives you His Spirit. We are to obey God who gives you His Spirit. So as He has our eyes at the end of chapter 3 on the soon coming return of Christ and being established in holiness on that day, He now moves very close to home. Number one, please God by progressing in purity. Again look at verse 1, finally then brothers, we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and please God just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. He begins there by saying, finally, which you may say, oh, I've heard a preacher say that before. And then he goes on to give you two more chapters. Well, this is not just a finally like, this is the last thing I have to say. It's a similar way that he used it in Philippians to transition about halfway through for, it's another way to say, uh, now for what remains. 
it's highlighting that there is a transition here from this encouragement section now to an exhortation section. He says, all right, let's, let's start applying the, the good news of the gospel that we've been reflecting on and celebrating about. And these words are strong words that he uses here in verse 1, to ask and to urge. He's saying, I'm, I'm begging you. I'm requesting you, I'm exhorting you, I'm encouraging you, I'm pleading with you, I'm imploring you. These are heartfelt words that highlight this pastoral pushing that he is going to be doing on this congregation, pushing them toward, toward holiness, toward Christ, toward that day when they're going to see him face to face, and that transformation that needs to happen along the way. He's urging them, asking them. And notice here that he's not just doing this because this is kind of his hobby horse, this is his soapbox, but rather he does this, we urge you in the Lord Jesus. Paul wants to be very clear as he begins giving these exhortations about his source of authority. Verse 2, you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. So these instructions that he is giving about these, these areas of life come with uh, apostolic authority under the command of King Jesus. He is delivering decrees of, from the divine creator and sustainer of all things, the maker of heaven and earth. That's the authority that he's coming with. He's going he's gonna to revisit that several times through these eight verses. Now, before we move on to the second thing, I just wanted to notice two things here in these opening two verses that I think are important and helpful for us as we think about this, this topic of growing in holiness by abstaining from immorality and pursuing purity. The first is this. You're going to notice here that he, the commands are oriented around relationship. The commands that he's giving here are oriented around relationship. Look again in verse 1, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God. These instructions that he's about to give regarding holiness or about walking the way, we, the way you live are given in light of a real, actual relationship that we have with God. He wants us to, to not fall into the trap of just doing religious stuff to where you kind of get all of your, your mental notes in order about how religious people are supposed to live. He says, no, 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 this is about your union, your relationship with the living God, the one who created you, the one who has ordained your whole life, the one who has loved you by giving his son Jesus for you and now given his Holy Spirit to you, this one who, who knows all things and sees all things, this one who knows everything that you're thinking, who knows everything that you look at on a screen, who knows everything that you do as you try to get a date and then go on a date who knows everything that happens in, in your bedroom, everything that happens when you travel, who knows everything. All of life must be understood in, in our relationship with God. And everything that we do is to be oriented around pleasing Him who knows all and sees all things. Now, I want to be really clear, when we talk about this, this language about pleasing God, what we don't mean is that you 
you earn your relationship with God. That is the opposite of what Christianity teaches. You see, Jesus came and he lived a perfect life and then he died on the cross for sinners like you and like me and then he rose from the dead and now he promises that if you will repent or turn from your sins and come unto him, you will be born again, you will become his child, you are his and you are brought into a real relationship with him where you are justified, legally declared, forgiven. You're his. But now... In our relationship with God, believers can be more or less pleasing to God depending on our obedience. So our relationship with God is secure, sealed by the blood of Christ. But our fellowship with Him, it, it, it ebbs and flows through life just as other relationships. We have lots of relationships and sometimes they're really good and sometimes they're not. In a similar sort of way, our communion with God, we have union with Him with Christ, but there is now communion with Him. We can be, our affections can be warmer or colder toward Him. Our obedience is more full or less full toward Him. And this is what He wants us to have in mind. He wants us to always be aiming to please Him, to, 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 to honor Him, to love Him, to bring Him pleasure and joy with everything that we do. This, by the way, is a, a repeated theme throughout the New Testament. I won't go into all of them, but just listen to this from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9. We make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So as a believer, if you are in Christ, if you have turned from your sin and trusted in Christ, what that means is that we live always aiming to please God, not just please people who are watching, but to please Him who sees and knows all things. And that requires effort. Listen to this from Ephesians 5.10. Try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. This means in every situation, in every relationship, every time you turn on the TV or open up the screen on your phone or have an interaction with somebody, what you should be thinking is, is this going to be pleasing or displeasing to the Lord? Because you're in a real relationship with the God who is always there. You see, commands that God gives in the Scriptures are not just about rule-keeping. This is about relationship-tending. It's about communing with him, knowing him, enjoying him all the more. And God's children love him and respond to him with trust and obedience, which is faith. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. Hebrews eleven six 6 says, this is the orientation of our, our heart. So these, these commands, as we hear them, we've got to understand they are oriented around relationship with God. Second observation before we move on to point two is this. We should expect progress in purity. We should expect progress in purity. Look again. You ought to walk and please God just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. So Paul encourages them for the way they're walking in holiness and pleasing God. He says, you're doing this. That's good news. But do so all the more. 
He's given them both encouragement and exhortation. Good job, now keep on going, right? Thumbs up, now a pat on the bottom or push on the back, whatever's more appropriate, right? So he's, keep going is the, the idea. He wants them to keep developing in their relationship with God. So our relationship with God must always be progressing, growing, maturing, never growing content in our obedience. Be like, you know what? I think I finally arrived. I remember as a, as a young Christian, I was probably a couple months in, and there were a couple key sins that I was trying to not do. And I remember that I had not given into those particular sins for, it must have been like a week. And I, I remember after that week, I was like, you know what? I think I finally got it. <laughs> but I haven't. And I hadn't then either. Because you begin to realize, oh no, there's, there's a lot more going on. It's not just changing of the outside, but God wants to change our, our hearts, right? We're always to be growing ever deeper in our abiding in Jesus, giving thanks, rejoicing, celebrating for how God is working, but never propping up our feet and getting comfortable, if you will. It's a lifelong pursuit. So, Please God by progressing in purity. Understanding all of these commands should be understand and orienting us to our relationship with God that should always be progressing and growing, never, never just getting stagnant. Okay? That's number one. Number two, fear God and abstain from immorality. Fear God and abstain from immorality. Again, verse three. For, meaning the reason he's just told you all this, this is the will of God, your sanctification. And then he's going to give you three clarifying statements about that. That you abstain from sexual immorality. Verse 4, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. And then verse 6, that. No one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger of all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Now, before we get into those three reasons that he, he unpacks about sanctification, I think some, just a couple of things to note. The first, the first is about this idea of God's will for your life. Did you catch it there in, in verse this is the will of God. Most people who know God, especially early on, but are kind of always asking, what is God's will for my life? God, what do you want from me? Right? Well, guess what? It's not a mystery. God tells you straight up what his will is for your life. Crystal clear. Sanctification. Now, some of you are like, okay, what's that mean? Good question. To sanctify means to set apart. It means to be made holy, to be set apart from sin and to be set apart to him. So it's a negative and a positive. It's both. It's no more indulging in, delighting in, finding identity in, pursuing sin, but now it's about indulging, delighting in, pursuing, finding identity in your relationship with Christ. That is sanctification. It's a setting apart from sin and setting apart unto God. That we are to be holy as he is holy. 
which was God's whole purpose in making the nation of Israel, which serves as a template for what God is doing in us. He's setting us apart to be holy as He is holy. And that is true inwardly and outwardly. Our affections, what we desire, is to be set apart unto Him, and our actions, what we do with our bodies and our lives and our words, are to be set apart unto Him. So God's desire for your life. You're like, God, what's, what's your will for my life? Very easy. To deliver you from sin and to make you like Jesus. This is God's will for your life. He wants to set you free from the slavery of sin and to make you like Jesus. This has been his purpose from eternity past. Listen to this. Romans eight twenty nine. God's people are predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. This is what God is doing if you're in Christ. He's making you like Jesus. Everything God is doing for his children centers on this aim. Salvation is the rescuing us from sin and remaking us after his son's image. That's God's will. So, to be really clear, if you want to know what does God want me to do with my life, here you go. Obey him in everything that he reveals, and then do whatever you want. Now that sounds overly simplistic, that's from, that's an Augustine remix, but he, let, me give you a, let me give you a verse and then unpack that for just a moment. Psalm 37, four, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. How many of you have ever heard that verse before? Okay, that verse is oftentimes used a little bit out of context, but let me tell you what the context means. The context means this. Delight yourself in the Lord. See him as your treasure, as your pleasure, as the one who knows everything that you don't know, the one who sees everything that you don't see, the one who is worthy of trust and delight and worship. Delight yourself in him, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Because what's going to happen as you are delighting in him? He's going to change the desires of your heart. He's going to help you to begin to love what he loves, to hate what he hates, to desire what he desires. So God's will for your life is to obey him, to trust him, to follow him, to please him, to love him by obeying him. And as he's changing your heart, then there's all kinds of freedom as to what you do with the rest of it. There is freedom in walking with him. What's God's will? He wants you to be holy like he is holy. And this, this setting apart of yourself unto him, just as we sang a moment ago in that song, Take My Life and Let It Be, is every area of our life. So if in every area of our lives we're seeking to obey him, to please him because of how much he's loved us, what that does is it reorients life to be about him and about the good of others and knowing that the, the, the byproduct of that is joy for us. This is the will of God, your sanctification. And it's about every area of your life, your words, your thoughts, your motives, your money, your time. And now here, he gives special attention to the most intimate area of our lives, sexual intimacy. This too must be set apart for God. Now for some of you, this may seem like a strange idea that God cares about your, your sex life. Let me be very clear about some things. God does not blush when he talks about sex. You see, God created us as sexual beings. 
I mean, rather than us just reproducing by laying eggs or something boring, he, he chose to produce life through the most intimate, enjoyable way imaginable. God actually designed our bodies and hardwired them with capacity for attraction and for pleasure. But procreation and pleasure aren't even the most amazing aim of this particular gift. You see, God actually designed the one flesh union as a metaphor of his exclusive, committed, intimate, secure, covenantal love for his people. Sex is a good gift from a good God. But just as we heard in the opening illustration, sin perverts it. The word pervert, it means to twist. It twists God's good design. He twists what is ultimately to be about God and others and, and, and certainly self in, in, a, in a very different way. He twists it to be a selfish, consumeristic pursuit where sin tries to convince us that, that basically sex is whatever you want it to be. It can be recreational, it can be relational. Whenever, however, with whomever you want. I mean, that is, you don't have to go far in any movie or TV show to, to see that that is what is proclaimed. We've got to understand that this perversion of God's purpose robs us of true joy and it dishonors God. And it leaves behind devastating effects. You see, God created sexual intimacy to be powerful. It is designed by God to knit the souls of husband and wife together, to intertwine emotions in an inseparable way. This is why you can't engage in sex without consequence. This is why, for many of us, some of the most lasting wounds that we've ever incurred center on this subject. Guilt, shame, regret, betrayal. For some of us and many of us, wounds from broken relationships still haunt us. In all of this, God's honor, honor and our joy and the good of others is why God instructs us so clearly about this area because how when it is misused it dishonors him and brings devastating effects upon us now he's going to clarify what he means about sexual sanctification with three clarifying phrases they all begin with that verse 3 verse 4 verse 6 this is the will of God, your sanctification, verse 3, that you abstain from sexual immorality. The word abstain means to be distant from, from sexual immorality. Now, what is sexual immorality? Well, there is, there is pure sex and there is perverted sex. So, pure sex that we just talked about a moment ago occurs when a husband and a wife willingly join their bodies to become one flesh. This is God's good design. Perverted sex, however, is any sexual engagement outside the union 
of one husband and one wife in marriage, whether it's by yourself or on a screen or you just met or it's a consensual monogamous relationship, regardless of what you, your partner, or the culture may say is normal and acceptable, God has clearly given His evaluation of what is happening if it's not according to His design. He says it is immoral. And I just want to be really clear. This is, Paul has said this, and I'm going to say it. I just want to point out here that this is, this is from the Lord. And God has the right to determine how this area is to be used because He's the designer. You see, God says that love is not love. God is love. And he says that any love that goes against his character or his commands must be avoided. And he does that not because he's some hater, but because he loves us and he knows what's good for us. And he knows how, how, how much this area matters to us. And he's protecting us. And listen, this teaching, it, it was strange and offensive in first century Rome where immorality was accepted and celebrated and assumed. So we often think, oh man, our day is really, really bad. Be like, listen, just read history and you're going to see it's always been really, really bad. See, but God loves us and he knows what is best for us which is why he gives his commands to abstain and to keep your distance from the misuse of this good gift. An illustration that my, one of my mentors uh, often uses in this, this is, is he likens sex to fire. So if you have fire in your house, it must be kept where? You keep it in a fireplace, right? And, and when it's in a fireplace, if it's not mid-August, it's wonderful, right? Think February, okay? There's light, there's beauty, there's warmth, it's inviting. But if fire gets out of the fireplace, what happens to the house? The whole thing's going to burn down and it's going to take out everybody in it. Sexuality is similar. It is a wonderful gift that brings life to those who enjoy it rightly. But enjoying it without God's instruction leads to destruction. Now, when some of us hear the command to abstain from sexual immorality, the natural follow-up question is what? Well, how, abstain from how much? Or the classic high school and college question was, well, how far is too far to go in this area in a relationship? Which, when that question is asked, we just want to highlight that it's, it's, yeah, it's outing you on something about your heart. Basically, what it's outing is that you're asking, how close can I get to sin before I'm really in trouble? It reveals a bit of a spiritual sickness and distrust in our heart toward God. So a better question might be something like this. Would or what would please God and show my love for Him in this circumstance? 
Will doing whatever this is help me and help others to better honor God? Those are better upward questions rather than what can I get away with kind of questions, right? Listen to this from 1 Corinthians chapter 6 that was read earlier. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. If you are in Christ, he wants you to know you don't belong to yourself anymore. You now belong to him, which is safe. It's safe and filled with joy to be owned by God. Because that's actually how you were created. <laughs> to, be, to be owned by him in a good way that is life-giving. So abstain from sexual immorality. The second clarifying phrase that he gives here in verses 4 and 5, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. One of the things I just want to clarify, notice here he says, each one of you, and he uses the word brother and the masculine pronoun often throughout this, but do not, get, do not misunderstand. The Bible is under no illusion, and God is under no illusion that this is not a struggle for both brothers and sisters. This is a human struggle. Brothers and sisters both struggle in this area. And what God expects his people to learn and to understand is how to actively plan to control your body in holiness and honor. You see, our, our sinful flesh desires to indulge in passion. And if you don't know God, the assumption is that you'll just do whatever you want to do, and if it makes you feel good and makes you happy and it's consensual, then hey, indulge. Sure, you may have some of your own standards to kind of, you know, rule your life, but the, in the end, you become the arbitrator of of when and how to, to give in to the desires. But if God rescue, rescues you from sin slavery and that deceitful kind of thinking and sets you free in Christ, now you know through faith in Christ that there is a God and that this God lovingly rules your life. And you know that his commands are good for you. And you know that he has given you his Holy Spirit to empower you to enjoy God's commands instead of your own passions. The Holy Spirit, one of the, the, the bit of fruit, if you will, that he produces is that of self-control. This is the work of the Spirit in the life of God's people to not just give in to your urges and desires, but rather to say, wait, 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 what would please God here? You see, God's children must learn to resist their body's urges and remember God's love for us and his commands to us and obey him rather than to obey sin. Listen to this instruction from um, Romans chapter 6. He says, let not sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members, that means your members of your body, every part of you, to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. The picture is don't give your body to sin to sin with. 
But present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from dead to life and your members, every part of you, to God as instruments for righteousness. Present your members to righteousness leading to sanctification. He brings you back to that very thing that is God's will for your life. He's saying you have a body, use it for him. God's will is to use your eyes and your mouth and your hands and your legs and your whole body to honor him which honoring him shows up in enjoying uh, your spouse if God gives you one and abstaining from every other outlet if not. And listen, these commands are not intended to steal joy, but to guard us and to actually maximize joy. His third clarifying statement so that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his body. And verse 6, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. That no one transgress and wrong his brother or brother and sister in this matter, meaning fellow children of God. One of the great motivations for holiness is that we see others not as an outlet for our passion, but rather we see them as deserving honor and protection from sin. The, the word transgress here, it means to cross a boundary. The word wrong, it's a very interesting word. It means to defraud or to cheat. It's often used in the context of money. Here it's used in the context of immorality, selfish gain at another person's expense. Now this is a profound reality that I promise you the world does not want you to be thinking about. But when you sin sexually, you are dishonoring and defrauding other people. You're taking something that is not yours to take. You see, if, if you are unmarried, the person you engage in sin with is actually potentially someone else's spouse. By sinning in this way, you are defrauding both that person and their future spouse. You're stealing something that is not yours to take because God has not given it to you. Likewise, you are potentially someone else's spouse, and you are sinning against your future spouse, even if you have not met them yet, because you're giving away something God desires only them to have, even if it's consensual. You've got to understand that it is rooted in selfishness that places our wants above God's will. Let me say it this way. To engage in this sort of sin and call it love is, I just want you to know, not in tune with reality. Because love never does anything to harm another person's relationship with God. Love never does anything to harm another person's relationship with God. And God's word warns us that judgment is coming for these sorts of sins. 
And true love wouldn't lead someone toward judgment. It would help them toward true joy. Lust is a self-serving sin that uses others for selfish delight and always at their cost of their relationship with God. Love, however, is oriented toward enjoying someone else in a way that God designs. So whether it be adultery, viewing people on screens, flings, committed relationships, God says all of it is a transgressing, defrauding of that person because that person is an image bearer of God himself. And when sexuality is removed from the sacred space of marriage, God says it has a degrading effect on people made in his image. And God takes this sin very seriously, and he calls us to do the same. Look at verse 6. Because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. The word avenger means punisher. This is a solemn warning that comes with these exhortations. Now, I just want to say, and not in any way as an apology, if you're visiting this morning and this is the first time you've been in a Baptist church, and this is exactly what you expected to hear from a Baptist church, I get it. I was not raised in a Baptist church, but this is what I would have expected to hear at a Baptist church. But I just want to say that we just teach verse by verse through books of the Bible, and this happens to be, in God's kind and wise providence, the text that you are here for today, because he seems to think that it would be good for you to hear. In the same way that me, in my first 21 years before knowing the Lord, would have needed to hear. Because I disregarded this in ways that are shameful. God in his mercy wants you to know that the world's path of pleasure does not actually lead to pleasure. It leads to destruction. God will judge those who disregard his commands. Because he is holy and because he is good, he will not overlook any evil, including the evil in this area. Listen to this from Hebrews 13.4. Let marriage be held in in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Because marriage and the picture it presents of Jesus in the church is so precious, God takes this sort of sin very seriously. Verse 7, for God has not called us for impurity but in holiness. To rebel in this area is to rebel against God's very purpose for your life. And I understand why it might not feel that way. How in many ways it could feel like, actually, no, this, is, this has been the avenue for me to have real relationships, to actually feel love, for me to, to be known and to know others. And God just wants you to know that it's, sin is deceiving you, if that's what you think. I think we should also hear be, be mindful to consider that <laughs> it's easy maybe to hear this and to think about the big sins, right? Never grow comfortable with any sin. 
You see, small sins are just greater ones in disguise. Any sin allowed to remain will prove to be a sort of cancer for your soul that will grow. Sin is, by nature, imperialistic. It may seem slow at first, but this is part of his deceitful plan. You see, Satan is happy to be patient. Just a little fantasy in the head that you just leave there for just a little bit in your mind. He's fine for you to just think that's not a big deal and to not understand that that will grow if not tended to and put to death by the Spirit. And, and also, never be comforted by how much of a worse sinner you could be. No sin is safe, no matter how small you perceive it to be. This is why the Bible's warnings about this particular sin are so severe. Number three, obey God who gives you His Spirit. Obey God who gives you His Spirit. Verse eight, therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not some Baptist preacher, not man, not your parents, but God, who gives His Holy Spirit to you. You see, Paul concludes here by pressing us to respond. What will we do with what is laid before us? Because the temptation is to disregard it. Right? The, the, the word means to reject, to refuse, to set aside, either with, you know, I'll get to that later, or that is wicked and oppressive, or, or however it comes out of you, we're all tempted to do the same thing. Just as all of us are going to be tempted to disregard uh, this command and to indulge in sin in lots of different ways, we're all sexually broken. Everybody. There's nobody in here who has it all together. Everybody is affected by the fall in this area, which ought to produce compassion toward one another when people struggle differently than you do, not some sort of self-righteous judgmentalism that looks down on others. All of us have to understand that this temptation to disregard it is there in us, though. To say this is oppressive, it's my right to do what I want with my body. This is merely some sort of regressive stare, scare tactics by some religious zealots who are out in touch with reality. Please hear this, though. This is from the God who made you because he loves you and he knows what is best for you. He does not delight in the death of the wicked. He desires us to turn and to live, though. Whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God. These are heavenly exhortations. Just listen again. Verse 1, he gives these in the Lord Jesus. Verse 2, through the Lord Jesus. Verse 3, this is the will of God. Verse 7, God has called you to holiness. Verse 8, to disregard this is to disregard God. One, two, three, four, five times in eight verses, he wants you front and center to know this is from the God who made you. Do, do not misunderstand. 
Just because you've heard this word from a fellow human, these commands are from our Creator. And to resist them is to resist God Himself. And to despise these commands is actually to despise the God who gave them. And this is why our culture works overtime to try to redefine who God is. It's been said that God created us in his own image and that we have ever since returned the favor. Tried to make him to be a God who, who, who's okay with the way we want to live. What the Bible calls that is idolatry. That you're making up a God who's not real. And this is a loving warning about that. Jesus said it this way, Luke 10, the one who hears you hears me. The one who rejects you rejects me. The one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. Do not, please, do not disregard the God who gave his son for you and has given his Holy Spirit to you. What an incredible act of grace. When we trust in Christ and are born again, the Holy Spirit of God comes to dwell in us. He seals us until the day we see Jesus face to face. He fills us with his presence. He empowers our obedience. He produces fruit that pleases God. He conforms us to the image of Jesus. And part of the way he does this is by convicting us of our sin. So please, if you hear this and you think, I know that's true, but I just don't like it, please, this is mercy from God. Don't push away his mercy. Ask God to help you to see your sin for what it truly is, an offense against him. That's a supernatural act of mercy from God. Ephesians 4.30 says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. The word grieve means to distress or to cause sorrow or sadden. Again, when we sin, we aren't just breaking a rule. It's a personal offense against the God who made us. 1 Thessalonians 5.19, do not quench the Holy Spirit. The word quench means to throw water on a fire to put it out. The Holy Spirit indwells us and fills us to produce the joy and life and delight in God. And sin snuffs out his presence. Not in a way that you lose your salvation, but it's, it, it leaves you cold and distant from him and weak and susceptible to more sin. That's why when you give in to sin and you compromise and you, and you give in, your flesh gets stronger and it's more difficult to war because you're grieving the spirit. You're like, hush God, I don't want to hear you. I want what I want. And the flesh gets stronger and the war is intense and it's more and more difficult. So the more you cultivate sin, the more you're grieving the spirit and quenching the spirit and you get weaker and weaker and this is how you become ensnared. But God wants us to hear that holiness is not opposed to happiness. God is a good God who created us with the capacity to enjoy his good gifts and the exhortation here is that we need to resist sin in order to enjoy him. Now, I want to conclude with three considerations for us. This is a, a heavy word, but an important word. First thing I just want to encourage you in is this. Growing in sexual purity is possible. 
So we hear this this morning, and you are a child of God. You've been born again by the grace of God, and you are struggling in this area. You find yourself so weak against temptation, and you continually feel like you just keep giving in, and you want to fight. I just want you to know that by the grace of God, real transformation and progress in holiness is possible, but it's not easy. Holiness does not just happen. You must strive for it in all of the grace that God gives. In fact, as one pastor said, almost everything is easier than growing in godliness. I mean, almost everything. Changing from one degree of glory to another often happens at a painfully slow pace. It's not like you cook a meal. You can cook a meal in a microwave, put it in, beep, it's done. Spiritual maturity does not work like that. You cannot microwave spiritual maturity. It's more of a crock pot. It's a slow cook. But it can happen. Moment by moment, day by day, week by week, God has promised to complete the good work in you that he began to make us more like Jesus. And as we grow and resist sin, I want you to know that he can change what you desire. And the glory of Jesus can begin to captivate you and ruin our taste for sin's promising pleasures. It's like if you don't eat sugar for two months and then you just eat some cotton candy, you will be like, ugh. It's just over. You don't want that anymore because your tastes have changed. God does that with our soul's affections too. I just want you to know it's possible. And I want you to know that this is a church where you can You can work that out, and the pace may be slow, but we want you to know that we are a people who understand how difficult it is, and we want to walk alongside each other to help that happen. Second thing here is that I want to encourage you and exhort you, and this is going to not be a by-yourself project, but do this with another brother or sister, whatever's appropriate. Number two, design your life to resist sin and to please God. Design your life to resist sin and to please God. First, positively, do whatever you need to do to guard your time in God's Word. It is rare for me to sit down with someone who is ensnared in some sort of sexual sin and say, so tell me about your personal prayer life, your times of fasting, and your time in God's Word. It is rare for the person who's ensnared to sin to say, I'm praying 30 minutes a day. I'm fasting regularly, I'm reading God's word for 30 minutes or whatever it may be. Usually that's not what's happening. Usually those disciplines have grown cold. You've got to guard your time in God's word and in prayer and in fasting. Teaching yourself to pursue him in faith. If if you don't know what that looks like or don't know how to do that, we want to help you to grow in that. This is a place where you can learn to do that. Along with this, I want to encourage you to make it difficult to sin. So I just use myself as an illustration because, well, I know myself the best. And um, it is, I can give in to sin in this area. It can happen, all right? Pastors are not exempt from this at all. I've designed my life to make it so difficult for me to be able to give in in this area that I have to jump over all sorts of barriers and barbed wire, if you will, is the way I think about it. I've set up barbed wire all around me to make it difficult, whether it be through monitoring systems on internet stuff or to where my iPhone is so dumbed down that if you put, you know, if you threaten my life, 
Like I couldn't pull up anything that I shouldn't. The kids are like, why can't your phone do what mommy's phone can do? I was like, well, because, well, because it's a bad world out there and we're, we're struggling to not look at stuff. And I'll tell you more about that. But we, we, you've got to find ways, whatever it looks like for you, to make it difficult for you to sin. Some of you need to delete phone numbers out of your, your phone. Some of y'all need to block, you need to block some email addresses. Some of y'all need to change your number. Some of y'all need to get a different job. Some of y'all need to maybe move where you live. Some of y'all need to stop living alone. Some of you, whatever it may be, some of you need to cancel some subscriptions that are just pumping death into your home. Whatever it may be, design your life in such a way to say, how am I most temptable? Where are, where's it coming from? And get with another believer and say, here's where I'm getting ambushed, help me. We want to be a church that helps you think through that. And, and, and part of this, again, surround yourself with friends. People who love you, but are not impressed with you. Who you can trust. I have people in my life right now who love me, who ask me very hard questions. It is super helpful and essential to grow in godliness. So design your life to resist sin and to please God. Talk about this today in community group or with someone you know or if you need help, the elders want to help you. And then thirdly and finally is this. I don't know about you, but a sermon like this can stir up some of the most debilitating shame and regret and just feelings of defeat and condemnation. Some of you, this may not be an area that is a regular struggle for you, but for those where it has been or it is, I just want you to know that there is grace for that. There is grace from Jesus to help you in the midst of whatever mess you're in. No matter where you have been or what you have done or even this morning, even if it was last night or this morning, I want you to know there's grace. God will meet you there and give you strength to get out, to be transformed. Where sin abounds, the scripture says grace abounds all the more because we have a Savior who did it right. You see, Jesus dying on the cross is amazing, but his life is equally amazing. He always obeyed. He always resisted temptation. He never let his eye and his heart and his mind wander. He always was pleasing to the Father in a way that is then credited to your account if you trust in him. And he on the cross suffered for all the ways that you have strayed. He took the judgment for all of it. He was condemned so that now if you are in him, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The scriptures say that your sins are cast as far as the east is from the west if you are in Christ. Gone, forgiven. And I want you to know that his grace will help you to grow and to resist. He is able and willing and desirous to help you, no matter how difficult or confusing it may be.